Welcome to Flashpoint. I'm your host, Andrew Holland. This week's podcast is with Peter Coharis, an adjunct fellow with ASP and a prominent international lawyer. One of his clients he's representing is St. Martin, the small island in the Caribbean that has long been a Dutch colony. They're currently engaged in litigation with the government of the Netherlands to determine a more equitable relationship between the island and the government in Holland. This leads us into a larger discussion of colonialism in the 21st century. While we may think of empire as a remnant of the 19th century and the wars of liberation in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, the truth is colonialism and empire is about power. And power in the 21st century is shaped by geopolitics of the large countries, particularly the United States and China. Ironically, the European states that were the dominant colonial powers of the previous centuries are using their remnant empires as a way to stay relevant in the 21st century geopolitical competition. Their empires are their means to stay relevant in areas far beyond the European areas of operation. Unfortunately, like in centuries past, the people living in these territories are far too often overlooked. It was an interesting conversation with Peter, and I hope you enjoy it. Now let's get into the show. So, so Peter, didn't colonialism end a century ago? What are you doing working in the Caribbean now on, on colonialism issues? Well, as you know, after 1945, after World War II, we had the UN system and the UN Charter. And Article 73 specifically focused on colonialism. And then you had a very painful post-war period, right? You had, for the French especially, Algeria and Vietnam, the United States Mm -hmm. and Vietnam. And we thought by the 60s, 70s, wars for liberation, wars for independence, liberation movements had sort of taken their, their course. That's actually not the case. Right. You, you still see all over the world, a lot of countries, a lot of places, especially islands, but not exclusively islands, where people can't decide their own future. They don't have full democratic rights. They don't have full freedoms. Their rights under international law aren't fully respected. And they still are, their lives are dictated by a foreign presence. Right. And there's also a strong, as you know, racial component to all of that that we could get into. Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot about colonialism as coming from imbalances of power. It's between powerful nations versus, you mentioned islands, and they're, they're naturally going to be less powerful, less people, less economic power. So it's this imbalance of power leads to a, a, an obvious imbalance of outcomes. And the racial equity issues that come up in that are, are obvious as well. How is this playing out in the Caribbean today? We, we think of Caribbean islands in the United States as a nice place to go for vacation. But for centuries, it was the crossroads of empire. It was places where European states fought to see who would be the colonial power and which island and invaded each other. And it was a, a seat of colonialism for centuries. And in, in many ways still is, whether it's American colonies, Dutch, British, French, uh, and others. What's happening in uh, the Caribbean now that we should be thinking about? Yeah, you're absolutely right. For for centuries, it was all about exploitation, right? It was about you know, natural resources from the new world or particularly fertile agrarian economies that produced, whether it was tobacco, yeah, tobacco. or cotton, spices or rum or sugar, sugar cane that would produce rum. You're absolutely yeah. right. Now, obviously, that's that's not the concern, but some of it is legacies. Some of it is 
Well, we're less exploitative. We have had this historic relationship. We have a historic obligation. That's the friendly, kinder, gentler face of colonialism. But there's also a less kinder, gentler face to colonialism, which is in the old days, because of the race disparities, these people couldn't be trusted. It was always these people, the other, people who were darker, couldn't be trusted to govern themselves. They were either too stupid, they were intellectually inferior to us, or they were too shifty or corrupt, or uh, they needed a strong white European hand to help them or to keep them in place. You know, you can't say that anymore in, in the 21st century. But what do you also hear now? You hear in place of that, they need our expertise. They don't have the capacity, the experience to govern themselves. So they need our expertise. Or B, there's corruption. And, yep. you know, there's corruption in these islands. And as a result, they need us. And we stand for the rule of law. And we're here to help them advance in terms of the rule of law. So that, that's what people tell themselves. It's, it's, it's very much a 21st century version of how do we explain to ourselves and justify deprivation of human rights, deprivation of the right to self-governance. Of course, it, it sounds almost exactly like the arguments made for things like the French and British mandates in the Middle East. You know, oh, these these countries are, have underdeveloped political systems and we need to help them grow. And, and someday they'll be able to, to be self-determined and govern themselves. But for right now, we need to do this. And of course, that also fits in with balance of power issues. And, you know, we have to make sure that, that we do this. Otherwise, an outside country, strong outside country might come in and do it in our place. And, and, and wouldn't do it as well and, and wouldn't be as kind as we are. That's right. That's exactly that's right. right. <laughs> yeah. and, that, and, that, and, that's how, and that's what you tell yourselves if you want to dominate other people and deprive them of their rights. And that's exactly right. And so as uh, most of the folks who'd be listening to this podcast know, in the Caribbean now, the Netherlands has six related islands. Three of them, Curaçao, Aruba, and St. Martin, are nominally countries along with the Netherlands in the kingdom of the Netherlands under the kingdom okay. charter. And there are three other islands, Bonaire, St. Eustatius, which is called uh, Stacia for short by most people, and Seba, and they are special municipalities. Now, why are they so special? Well, because they don't have the full rights of Dutch municipalities in the Netherlands. They don't get to send voting members to the parliament and they're treated very, very differently. And so none of these islands are full countries. They don't have full independence. Conversely, none of them have full, they ha they're Dutch citizens, but they don't have full rights of Dutch citizens. They don't have voting members of parliament. They aren't full members of the EU with full rights as other EU citizens. They have a very different set of rights. And in the last couple of years, in I represent St. Martin in, in its efforts to complete decolonization with the Dutch. Flashback 11 years ago, the Dutch had a huge constitutional moment where they restructured those islands and redid the Kingdom Charter, which is their version of the Constitution. And they made these islands nominally countries within the kingdom, but they're not full countries. And in St. Martin's case, in 2017, 2018, you had two hurricanes which devastated the island economies. Just about 90% of the buildings were affected, many of them destroyed. 
the Dutch had promised a half a billion dollars in US dollars sitting in a World Bank trust fund to be fit spent to rehabilitate the island economy and infrastructure. A fraction of that has been spent so far. And then you add upon on that, and this is happening throughout the Caribbean, post-COVID recession and the decimation to the tourism industry and cruise ships that not only is in St. That St. Martin has experienced, but throughout the Caribbean, all those islands have experienced, the economy has just cratered. And so they are completely dependent on aid right now. And the Dutch have used this opportunity to reimpose all kinds of Dutch administrative functions and authorities over the governance of the islands. In other words, we'll give you aid, but you surrender your democratic rights to self-governance, to legislate independently for yourself, to administer for yourself. And I filed a petition with the UN Special Rapporteur on Racism and a special working group on peoples of African descent, claiming that much of the Dutch actions over the last few years, but also over the last decade, have been in violation of their rights under international law because they're trying to reimpose colonial authorities and take away rights, democratic rights and rights to self-governance of the islanders. It's, this is a familiar story. It sounds like what, what's happening is they, through outside agencies, their economies were harmed. Outside agencies being hurricanes and COVID and stuff like this, but then they're being blamed for that as as saying, "Well, you're you must be too corrupt, or you must be too incapable of self governance." So, in order to get the the recovery aid you need, we're going to reimpose some sorts of political control over you. We see it actually sometimes in the United States in cities, Detroit or or places like this. They've been issues like that. We also see it some. The comparison sounds fairly apt to what's been happening over the last four years in Puerto Rico as well, where, of course, Hurricane Maria had similar devastating effects. And, you know, I, I think we could argue that as we go into a increasingly dangerous weather cycle because of climate change impacts and stronger hurricanes, stronger storms, that these these islands are going to be even more dependent and harmed by these outside agencies. So we've got to figure out a way to make it make them resilient and also make them a you know able to have full control over their futures. It's a it's a difficult problem. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. And you know, look, some of this is island countries everywhere face challenges. Right. right? There are only there are only so many cruise ships in, right. in the world and. Some islands resort to, frankly, money laundering. And so that was a traditional, the British started that with islands right off their coast and then expanded it. And drugs are a problem in the Caribbean. The Venezuela crisis and human migration is a problem in the Caribbean. And the Caribbean, as you pointed out at the very start, it still remains a strategic place in terms of global transport, right? Because of the Panama Canal. And there's talk about expanding the Panama Canal. And I even saw an article recently where the Chinese are talking about putting a canal across Nicaragua. Right, Uh, an alternative, yeah. A bigger, bigger, uh, uh, the Nicaragua Canal. So given what happened just recently with the Suez and the bottleneck and the the disruption of supply chains, the the, the Panama Canal is important. And its importance is very much recognized by Europeans. So yeah, there's a, a sense of 
Okay, though it's interesting, the Dutch tried this, remember, in Europe, the frugal four with respect to the 600 plus billion euro aid package course, yeah. in Europe last year, it, led by the Dutch, they wanted to impose upon southern countries the same kind of limitations, you know, we'll give you some aid, but it'll be mainly debt, and we will condition debt tranches upon you undertaking specific reforms and meeting specific goals, etc. And many of the goals ironically, Andrew, are really recessionary. Mm -hmm. Nobody in a global recession, That's right. except for the Dutch and a handful of other European countries, think how you respond is by slashing government spending so right. that you can have an all-important balanced budget. Right. You know, because right. inflation is still, I mean, the Germans, even the Germans let go of this. Right, right, which right. tells you something, right? I'm a Greek man. I followed Germany and, their, <laughs> and its relations to Southern Europe quite closely. The Germans let go of this, but only the Dutch are arguing, gosh, let us impose recessionary measures in the face of a global recession. Nobody believes that makes sense. Right. Debt is not something that is just a financial mechanism. It's a character flaw. It's a human flaw. Taking on debt, taking on these things, you must be doing something bad. And there must be something wrong with your government because you're not able to balance your budgets. You're That's not exactly able to right. live within your means. Put aside how many times the French and German didn't meet their own debt yeah. goals and the Dutch government in the last 10 years hasn't met. I mean, recently it has, yeah. but over the course of 10 years, it hasn't met its own debt ratios. So that's absolutely right. It's, it's a moral. And so by that measure, the United States has to be one of the most corrupt <laughs> and immoral countries in the world, include Japan, yeah. you know, include much of Europe, include South Korea, right? I yeah. mean, it's. It, it doesn't make sense, but it sells well for domestic political audiences, let's say That's that, right. because all those others are morally inferior to us, and we need to restrain their bad impulses. So, so bigger picture, uh, thinking about Europe and kind of the increasing European identification with their former colonies and trying to get more influence in regions of the world. Today, we're there is kind of this growing competition between the U.S. and China. Do we think that, that part of this European neocolonialism is in reaction to that, how that, that's going? Is, is, is this a, a part, a, a kind of a power play by Europe to be able to be a, a player on the global stage again? Yeah, you know, that, I think that's well put. And it's a power play in two senses. One is an honest fear that they cannot especially after the last four years, they cannot simply cede you know, global yep. national security to the United States to protect them and their interests. They have to be in a position to do so themselves. And secondly, that the Chinese have been very aggressive. Remember, as late as the past the 90s, into the 2000s, and frankly, even in the Obama administration, you heard people say, well, you know, the, the, the Chinese, their ambitions, it used to be were just nationally within their borders. And right. then people said, well, they're regional, but it's only to protect X, Y, and Z, local, regional. And many of those voices somehow can't explain what the Chinese have been doing in Africa, what the Chinese have been doing in Europe, including in the Port of Piraeus, in Greece, and they, they made overtures in Italy. I don't know whether they ever closed the deal. They're in the Bahamas. And suddenly these voices have got, had to admit, okay, maybe BRI isn't just about aid and development. Right. Maybe when governments can't pay these debts, 
and the Chinese foreclose or at least have to be asked to refinance on much more favorable terms, that they now have an enormous amount of influence. I mean, one could say, if one wanted to be completely critical, and I don't think it's fair to be completely critical of the BRI as neocolonial, but, you know, one could say, why conquer when you can just do a leverage buyout of some of these nations, especially if you look at Sri Lanka, if you look at the Maldives, the Maldives, there's been an enormous amount of investment, an enormous amount of debt, and a very little realistic prospect of that debt being able to be paid off under the original terms. We've seen very clearly that the Chinese seem to understand this imbalance of power concept, that with relatively small amounts of money, of investment from China, that can be disproportionately powerful within small countries, Maldives, Sri Lanka, investment into key infrastructure, key energy, key mining interests, all these sorts of things. The the Chinese can come in, find what they want, and then I like your, your concept of a leverage buyout and that, you know, kind of force, it's a debt trap diplomacy is what often is called. It may not, you know, it may not start as debt trap. It may may start as simply, we want this sort of stuff and we're we're willing to pay for it and willing to buy it. But then it goes and continues and and goes beyond what the the countries can support. So it's natural for countries like the United States. And now I, I think interestingly, Europe to want to push back on that. The United States has restructured its foreign aid, foreign development assistance programs to be able to be more responsive to that. The various export-import bank and export financing sort of things have changed in the United States as a response to this to try and be responsive and be able to be investing in these countries. Yeah, I, I, I'm actually on the advisory council for the MCC, the Millennium Challenge right. Corp, and I'm, I'm outside counsel to the DFC, the Development Finance Corporation, the former OPIC. And as you know, the DFC's budget is much greater than it was just even a few right. years ago. It's 60 plus billion. And now, ironically, they're facing the challenge of moving that amount of money. And they have, that's no, I mean, it's yeah. hard. Right. Yeah. You know, and you they also have a challenge of moving it to low income countries yep. so that, you know, you can't just write a two hundred million dollar check and build some massive cogen or you know power project in Turkey. You can spend money that way, but that's not their mandate anymore. Right. Their mandate is to really go after low income countries and they've got some real challenges and they can take equity now. But that's also a challenge. And I think the foreign policy types, with all due respect, think, well, this is going to be our countered BRI, but they work very differently. And what they can do is very different. Right. And nobody gets in trouble in China if the project doesn't pay for itself. In fact, some might argue- In some ways, that's the point. point, (laughs) uh, If you really want to be cynical. But again, look, I mean, look, some of what the BRI does is some of what the Chinese have done in parts of the world, I I support and I think have been been a good idea. And so again, the American perspective versus the Chinese perspective, they they could certainly come to their own defense on a lot of things. That's another discussion. But the, the larger picture that you raise is correct. The Europeans- The Chinese, the Americans are thinking, okay, we are all pushing and pulling in different directions. I don't want to be left out of this equation. And I think the aggressive claims in the South China Sea and the enormously important, the importance of that region 
And it sounds like a small region, but if you actually look at the Chinese maritime claims, it's right. massive in terms of important U.S. allies and important countries yep. in the region. That's worrisome, and it should be worrisome to everybody. And I think the French are thinking, you know, we've got one aircraft carrier, but we have French Polynesia. That's a sitting aircraft carrier, and it's even yep. bigger. They're, they're not the only ones who think in those terms. I mean, American Samoa is it's a very poor part of the world. Uh, we neglect it far too much. We, we don't give it nearly the kind of credit that it, it deserves, but it is an important presence for us yes. in the Pacific. Yeah. And so the answer, though, Andrew, is you can have these relationships, but do it on a consensual basis right. and ask whether these people want to have complete self-governance. Decolonization isn't binary. It's not uh, we, we either are completely independent or we have to maintain the status quo. There are all kinds of relationships that people can have with, you know, an American or European or some other presence. It can be complete independence, but an alliance. It can be a commonwealth of nations arrangement. It can be, we're going to be the 51st state in terms of Puerto Rico, yep. uh, followed maybe by the U.S. Virgin Islands, maybe yep. followed by someplace else, we, or will be a full Dutch municipality. There are a range of relationships. Yeah. And the point is that these folks should be able to negotiate and vote in a democratic process for what kind of relationship makes sense to protect their human rights and their uh, right to self-governance. It, it doesn't, it's not one size fits all. And because that's kind of bottom line of the UN Charter and human, UN human rights issues is that this isn't about power, power politics. That, that this is about human rights, that, that there are certain baseline, people are equal and people should have the ability to negotiate and determine their own governance based on an equal playing field, based on an equal back and forth. That's right. And, and, and that, that I argue, and I've, I've, I've given several interviews with Dutch media, and I, you know, the, the Dutch have, are, are strategically obviously very adept and they understand that they, why the Caribbean is important for them and why they want to maintain a presence there. And my position is always, and look, I, I respect the Netherlands as an important NATO ally. This having a relationship based upon, as you said, human rights, consensus, democracy is going to strengthen whatever relationship emerges. It's going to strengthen the Netherlands and their national security and their cohesiveness. This isn't undermining the Netherlands and the current structure. It's actually coming to an honest terms with the fact that the relationship isn't working. It's not strong. It's causing divisions. Let's, let's put it on a much more firm footing constitutionally and from a, a legal and human rights perspective. Because that, from a national security point of view, that will enhance their security. And I, I think the French got that in the Pacific. Right. And I think the United States is getting there in places and at times. That's right. French Polynesia is, they, they send representatives to the government. They are equal partners, right? They send, send representatives. And they just had a plebiscite, the second of three, last yeah. fall. And it was a slightly smaller margin but nonetheless still voted to remain part of France. Yeah. And so, and there'll be a third one, I think, in another two years. And how did that happen? Well, the French have been very aware that they need to cultivate this relationship. They need to invest in it, both financially and otherwise. 
And so far, it's worked for them. Will, will French Polynesia ultimately become a full part of France or will it become like a, a Gibraltar situation? Will it become an independent but a close ally? You know, that's up to French Polynesia, but the, the French are at least are aware that this relationship needs tending and, and Macron has been aggressive about and vocal about the need to make that relationship important and the continued importance. So yeah. that's, I think, the, the, the template going forward is it's not to, you know, decolonization isn't a threat to right. Europe. It's not a threat to the United States. It's how do we ensure that this relationship is sustainable? Yeah. And we do that by having people's consensus, self, self-governance or whatever it may be. Yeah, people have long memories when it comes to decolonization. If if you do it right, they can be drawn to the what, the, the colonial country and become a, a, an important part in their political life. If it if you do it wrong, then it can. There's there's lots of ways, lots of examples of how decolonization has gone wrong and ends up with a, antagonistic relationships between the former colonial country and and the former colonial power. So. And the French have learned that bitter lesson in, in much of Africa. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Where they beat it wrong repeatedly. Yeah. <laughs> for repeatedly a very, wrong. very long period of time. Well, interesting. Peter, thanks for being with us. Where can people learn more about your work with St. Martin and, and everything that's going on there? Well, I can send you, you know, some links for, right. for the ASP website. And there have been a number of, you know, mainly regional in the region. And now the Netherlands has picked up. The Washington Post had an article about this a, a couple of weeks ago. And they can certainly Google that, uh, St. Martin in the Netherlands. We expect a, a few other sort of uh, international publications to come out with some articles in, in right. the coming weeks. We'll put, uh, put links in the show notes. Thanks for being with us, Peter. Thank you very much. Thanks.